Welcome to the Bethesda Christian Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit yourbcc.org or download our mobile app from the App Store. Good morning, good morning. What a great morning. Boy, this place sounded so fantastic this morning. Those kids were phenomenal, weren't they? I mean it. They are, it's just so great to have such life and energy in the sanctuary. I love it. I love it. And uh, last week we had some energy here too, and I just want to take a minute to say to all of you who were up here on this platform last week, taking part in that skit that, uh, by the way, I had some really good comments about what it had to say and how it was presented, and I just want to say thank you. Thank you. Julie and I both want to say thank you to all of you who participated last week, and uh, I'm usually not here. I'm usually not here when someone else is standing up here at the pulpit. Reverend Barry Allen uh, took my place several times in the summer, and I know he did a great job. I just wasn't here to see him. But I was here to see Julie last week, and I thought she did a great job, too. Uh, I really did. And we had, as part of that service, we had a little snippet from Charlie Brown's Christmas. And it's, it's just such a, a great, great scene where little Linus tells us the true meaning of Christmas. And I saw a little news, a little news article about that this week, and I thought, gee, it, it, it wasn't the best news. But this school board in Texas, the Colleen, Texas School Board, they uh, took action against a nurse in, the, in, in a uh, middle school. And this nurse, I read you from the article, it said a staff nurse on the front door of the nurse's office at Patterson Middle School put up a poster. It showed Peanuts character Linus in the quote, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. So it was a poster, had Linus, and it had that little quote. And the school's principal told the nurse that the Bible reference would have to be removed or the poster would have to be taken down. And I thought, it's, it's a cartoon character. And this is his actual quote. If it was the Minions or, or I don't know, some other animated thing, it would be fine. But gee, it's Linus talking about Christmas. Well, I'm glad we can talk about Jesus in this sanctuary this morning. And we can talk about the real meaning of Christmas. And even if we use Linus, a character from the Peanuts, nobody's going to tell us to take it down because Jesus is our king. He is our king. He was born in this world. We sung all about him this morning, how he came into the world as just a little babe, humbly, but he became king of kings and lord of lords. And this morning... I want to share with you from a royal psalm, Psalm number 72, that speaks about a king. Now, this psalm was really a psalm written about the natural king Solomon, the king of the 
king of the earth at the time, uh, perhaps written by his father, King David, for his son and his successor. But it's a great, great picture of our king and our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to read to you the whole psalm this morning. Psalm uh, 72. It says, Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, the hills the fruit of righteousness. May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. May he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. May he be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. In his days may righteousness, may the righteous flourish and prosperity abound till the moon is no more. May he rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the and of the distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence for precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. May grain abound throughout the land. On the tops of the hills may it sway. May the crops flourish like Lebanon and thrive like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. Then all nations will be blessed through him and they will call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Pray to, praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. What a picture. What a picture of a king. The prayer of a father for his son, but such a great and glorious reference to Jesus. This psalm pictures peace emanating from power. And in Solomon's reign, he was a king of peace. He wasn't a warrior. And this psalm speaks of the power of a king who is mighty and strong and yet gentle. It's such a great picture of Jesus. The truest gentleness is associated with strength. And this psalm, though it be about Solomon, it points to one greater. And surely, one greater than Solomon has indeed come. He came as the Christ child. He came as Jesus. He arrived the same way that Solomon did. He was born, born of a woman. But that's about where the similarity ends. Solomon had every possible advantage and luxury, but Jesus, humble, were his surroundings. 
Not like the palace where Solomon was born. No, Jesus was placed in this makeshift cradle that was uh, put together from a manger where animals ate. He wasn't attended to by servants and domestics who were at the beck and call of his parents. No, he was visited by shepherds from a field. Such was the birth of the king who is alluded to in Psalm 72. And yet he became one who was greater than Solomon. And greater not by the standards of the world, but rather by the standards of heaven. And that's why so many missed it. They missed the purpose for which Jesus came into the world. They were looking for this king who would make their enemies lick their dust. That's what the psalm said. A king who would crush the oppressors, deliver the afflicted, and save the needy from death. They missed Jesus. Came for that reason. He came to crush the serpent's head. He came to deliver the afflicted from sin. And he came to save the needy from death in hell. Solomon brought peace and prosperity to his kingdom on earth. That's true. But Jesus Christ brings peace and prosperity for the soul. And he builds a kingdom that is not of this world, the kingdom of heaven. One greater than Solomon has come. And he has a much, much greater purpose. He came to conquer death and hell and the grave. And he rules not as some malevolent monarch. No, he rules as the prince of peace. Psalm 72 pictures power, but from that power emanates peace. See the gentleness of Jesus. See the gentleness in which he operates. May he be like the rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. It's at verse 6 there in Psalm 72. And what does the psalmist want us to see in this little word picture? What image does he want us to invoke in our mind's eye? Where we live here in Michigan, we are surrounded by greenery. For a good portion of the year, the trees are green, the grass is green, and grass is so common. When we think about a freshly mown lawn, what do we picture? We likely picture this bright green grass, maybe a little dew on the blades of grass or a light rain has fallen and it's just shimmering in the sun and it's beautiful. That's our experience. But that's not the experience of those who were living in Israel in the kingdom of Solomon when this psalm was written. I want to show you a, a picture here. Take, take a look at this now. Now there's Michigan on the left, and there's the Mideast on the right. And that's, that's a recent satellite photo of both. Do you, do you see a little difference there? Do, do you see how green we've got it? If they get any green, they must, ha they must hold on to it. I, I, that is a stark difference. The green to the brown. Look at that contrast. The area where this psalm was written, it's an arid place. It isn't lush. It isn't so green like we're accustomed to. 
when the psalmist writes about a freshly mown field, think about it this way. Think about your lawn in the heat of August. Now imagine we're having one of those summers where there's a hot streak and the sky is cloudless and the sun is scorching day after day. And then your community calls for water rationing. And now you're, you're, you're de- commanded, you, you cannot water your grass. Oh, you know, I know we get all nervous. Oh no, what's going to happen to our lawn, our green lawn? We're, it, it's an order. We have to stop watering. It's starting to turn color, isn't it? What are we going to do to protect it? Well, we let it grow. We let it grow long. It doesn't grow, though. It doesn't grow like it did in the springtime, does it? But it still creeps up a little, and the taller it gets, the better off it is because each little blade of grass provides a little shade for the blade next to it and provides a little bit of comfort for the root, offers some relief. A week goes by, two weeks go by, three weeks go by, and yeah, you're looking at it. It's, it's starting to look really terrible, isn't it? And you say, I got to cut it. I, regardless, I have to cut my grass. It's been three weeks, maybe four. Looks terrible, but you run out there with the lawnmower and you run over it, and now it's short. And it's brown. And it can no longer shade its root. And now the hot August sun, it dries up your soil. It becomes as hard as a rock. Now that's the freshly mown field of Psalm 72. It's probably brownish. The soil's probably really hard. But now picture the rain. Picture the rain coming. It falls gently but steadily. It's not a blustery, noisy thunderstorm that dumps a downpour in two minutes and then the sun comes right on its heels and begins to scorch again. No, it's a soft, quiet rain that falls straight down and it falls long and steady and it lets the earth just soak that moisture up, a much-needed drink. And when that rain passes, you begin to see your colorless grass, that withered and tired lawn starts to revive. It starts to come back to life. Those blades start to point skyward again. And is not that a picture of rejuvenation? It's a picture not of creation, but recreation, of revival, of regeneration. We get this word revival from the Latin vivir. It means to live. It means life. And revive is to come back to life. And Jesus came to revive because of Christmas, because he came in that little, that little manger. He came to revive our souls like a peaceful shower gently falling. He pours out on the parched, mown field of a soul, and he brings new life. In Jerusalem, they essentially have two seasons. It's summer and it's winter. In the summer, from about May through September, it just doesn't rain. But come November, the rains begin, and they, they begin to uh, increase uh, into December and January. 
And the rains are welcomed. I found this article by a, a lady named Miriam Miller who moved to Jerusalem in 1999 and she settled there to raise her family and she wrote a little article about the weather and she says this, because Israel's water supply is so dependent on rainfall, Israelis hope, pray, and beg the heavens for winter rains. A particularly torrential rain is known as rains of blessing in Hebrew. So you won't hear anyone grumble about a rainy day here, not even little children. The first winter I was in Israel, I lived across the street from a kindergarten. I was surprised one day in November to hear the roar of a stampede as all the kids ran into the schoolyard outside screaming. In a panic, I rushed to the window to see what had happened. On the sidewalk beneath my window, 45-year-olds were jumping up and down, dancing and shouting with joy, their faces turned up to the sky. It was raining for the first time of the season. They stayed out there reveling amid the raindrops, getting thoroughly soaked for a good 20 minutes. The teachers were out there too, just as thrilled as the kids. That's the rain of Psalm 72. New life is coming, and little children and adults are dancing with joy. They love it. They've been waiting for it. It's a, it, it's a great picture of reflection refreshing, reviving, life-giving water. And that's the water of Jesus. Jesus is portrayed as life-giving water throughout Scripture. In the book of Exodus, Jesus is the rock on Mount Horeb that springs forth water. In Proverbs, he is good news, like cold water to the, to the, to the thirsty soul. In the book of Jeremiah, Jesus is the fountain of living waters. That's why we sing that great hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. In Isaiah, Jesus is the spring whose waters do not fail. In Zechariah, he is the river of living water that flows out of Jerusalem from the east and to the west. The writers of the New Testament they speak of the cleansing power of Jesus as living water. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman he met at the well, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In the book of Revelation, the closing book of the Bible, Jesus is seen giving the free gift of the water of life. I mean, it's such a picture of life. And of course, water is a necessity for life. In the New Testament, Paul describes Jesus as the giver of this life-sustaining water in his first letter to the Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and it's verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, and they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock is Christ. Now, as it relates to water. There's a lot here in these few verses, but as it relates to water, 
Paul gives us two images of Jesus. One, that Jesus is the life-giving water for the soul, and two, he's the cleansing water of baptism. Paul mentions both. All of us, all of us need the life-giving water for the soul. We need new life. Paul said, from the natural rock, which flowed real water, there was a spiritual reality. The rock was Christ. The natural depicts this spiritual reality. Jesus, the rock, pours forth life-giving water. Now it revives, it regenerates. What did Jesus call this process? He said it's like being born again. He said you must be born again. This rebirth, the new birth, it's necessary because we were all in bondage. As Paul had mentioned, this group that had been baptized through the sea and under the, crowd, the cloud, baptized into Moses. These were the, the uh, Hebrews that had been living in bondage under the Hebrew, uh, under the Egyptians. So, so these Hebrews were enslaved in Egypt, but they were set free. And like the Hebrews who were enslaved, we were all born. We're all born in bondage to sin. And sin is death. A soul in sin is like a dehydrated field. It's like being under the scorching sun. It's withering away. It needs revival. It needs new life. And that new life is offered by none other than Jesus Christ. He offered his life. He offered his life so that we could have new life. Scripture calls it a ransom, calls it a payment to make restitution for the offense of sin. It's because sin brings death to the soul, it separates from God, and it requires this debt to be paid. Uh, Jesus came for that very purpose. And that's the reason for Christmas. Because, because of Christmas, Jesus come to the earth, and now he offers us this great drink. And his offer is really straightforward. Jesus said early in the Gospel of Luke, he said, I've come to call sinners to repentance. There's the offer. Later in his ministry, Jesus is asked by some people about a group that was executed by the Roman governor Pilate. And the implication of this crowd that surrounded Jesus about these people who were executed was they were sinners. They deserved to be executed by Pilate. And they died because of, of their sin. Now I want you to listen to Jesus' reply to this group that said, those people deserve to die because they were sinners. It's Luke chapter 13. It's verses 2 and 3. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. That's some pretty sobering words by Jesus. When he said perish, he wasn't just talking about the human body. He's talking about the soul. He's talking about eternity. Jesus was always pointing to the eternal. And he said, unless you 
all repent. Repentance is required. It's not an option. It wasn't a suggestion made by Jesus. He said it's necessary. There isn't anyone who is above repentance. It's a universal call by Jesus Christ to all on earth. If you want to receive eternal life, if you want to receive this great drink that Jesus has to offer, it's why Jesus said you must be born again when he encountered the Pharisee Nicodemus. To be born again, to be revived, to be rejuvenated in, inwardly, to receive the water of life for the parched soul, Jesus said, repent. Then Luke recorded the parable of the prodigal son. When the wayward son who went out and partied, and the Bible uses words like riotous living, and he squandered his fortune, and he found himself destitute, he repented. And this is what he said in Luke 15. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. The son realized something about his sin. His sin was not only offensive to his own father here on earth. His sin was offensive to God in heaven. Sin's that barrier to eternal life. But the grand thing that the prodigal heard from his father was, my son was dead, but now he is alive again. Luke recorded Jesus' call to repentance early in the gospel. He recorded it at the height of Jesus' ministry. Jesus speaking about repentance. And in the very last words that Luke records of Jesus here on earth, just before he ascended into heaven, we read it in Luke 24. And Jesus told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. This thing called repentance is central to the message of Jesus Christ. Repentance is necessary. And what is it? Repentance is a conscious realization of, of the sheer inadequacy of our own self-righteousness. Repentance is coming to terms with this need. It's an awareness of the need, the need to be forgiven of sin, the need to be in right standing with God. Repentance is understanding the need for our soul and realizing it's dead in sin and it needs to be revived back to life. And when that realization occurs, we turn. We turn away from that sin. And there's only one way we can turn that will have any effective results. Now I know sometimes we turn and we try to turn to something that might help us or change us, but it doesn't work. The only way to turn where the result will be effective is to turn to Jesus and to commit our life to him and put our sin behind us. And he forgives. He forgives like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering 
the earth. Revival. The gentle Jesus pours out and he revives the soul and he brings new life. And we have a group of people here this morning who have received that new life. They have made that turn to Jesus Christ in repentance. They have received this water of life provided by Jesus for their souls. And this morning they're going to be making a public declaration of their commitment to Christ. And that's the second picture of the water that was presented in 1 Corinthians 10. Baptism. Paul said the children of Israel received a baptism of sorts when they crossed over the Red Sea and they were under the cloud of protection by God. They came from Egypt. They passed through the Red Sea. They were saved. But Paul says they were baptized into Moses. In the New Testament, all who have repented are called to be baptized into Christ because one greater than Moses has come and his name is Jesus. Baptism is this essential step in the life of every single Christian. As early as the New Testament churches were formed, the apostles preached, repent and be baptized. Foundational. Baptism was necessary and important, and its importance is made known in so many instances in the churches in the New Testament. Scripture attests to the importance of baptism in the churches in Jerusalem, in Rome, in Ephesus, in Colossae, in Corinth, in Galatia. You read the historical accounts in the book of Acts, or you read the letters that the apostles written, and baptism is significant. It's written about in all of these churches. When a person is baptized, they are making it known to the community that they have made this commitment in repentance by faith to now live for Christ. And when we obediently yield to that and we yield to baptism, God does a work. God does a work on our heart. I read to you from Paul's letter to the Colossians about this work on our heart. Paul writes, In him, in Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So what's Paul telling his readers who had been baptized? When you were dead in sin, you were made alive in Christ. Jesus was nailed to that cross to pay your debt, your debt for sin. The charge has been canceled, Paul writes. He said it was a legal indebtedness. But Jesus going to that cross made forgiveness possible, made forgiveness of that debt that we owed entirely possible. And when you repented, when you turn to Christ, you receive that forgiveness. This is what Paul is, is writing to that church at Colossae. He said this to these in that church who were baptized. And when you were baptized, he says, God did something. Something happened 
Christ performed a work on your heart. Paul called it a circumcision. He connects it to this Old Testament rite of circumcision. It's a cutting away of something and discarding it. A covering, as it were, on the heart, removed by God. It's an amazing thing. In the Old Testament, circumcision is the sign of the covenant. It's the sign of being in relationship with God. And baptism, spiritual circumcision, that's the new covenant sign of being in Christ and being in relationship with him. That highlights the magnitude of baptism. When we yield in baptism, we signify our understanding that Jesus Christ died for our sin. We all who witness that we understand the great significance of Christ's sacrifice. We're saying our sin was so awful. We understand he paid for it with his life. And Paul says, you're buried with him, signifying you're dead to sin, and then you're raised with him. Out of the water, revived, clean, new life. This group of people here this morning who have come to repentance and turned to Jesus, they're going to be baptized and they're going to receive the sign of the new covenant. All of them are part of our adult catechism class and I want to uh, invite them all to come to the platform this morning, all of you who are going to be baptized. I want you to come up here because before you go to those waters, we want to pray for you. This is Craig and Carl and Mark and Megan and Jessica and Pamela and Michael. And they're going to be baptized this morning. And before you're baptized, I want to ask you some things and I want you to acknowledge them. I know you've already come to this in your heart, but I'd like you to do it before all of all of this congregation that's here this morning, have you renounced your sin in repentance and turned to Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin? And have you received by faith the forgiveness for the penalty of sin he has offered and accomplished by his sacrificial death on the cross? Yes. yes All right. Amen. And as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Do you desire to be baptized in water as a public acknowledgement of Jesus before all assembled here and as an expression of your faith in Christ to receive the circumcision of heart, the sign of the new covenant? I do. Amen. All right. All right. Well, before we pray, we're going to light our Advent calendar this morning, our, our Advent candle this morning. I grew up with Advent calendars, so it's stuck. <laughs> Brother Carl Williams will be writing, lighting the Advent ca candle of love this morning. Now, Carl has got a testimony. This man has had, he's had an experience that might be similar to, uh, to Paul's experience. And he's here this morning to, to, to be baptized. And, and I know one day you're going to testify to that experience. But we want you 
to light our candle this morning, Carl. God bless you, Pastor. the candle that depicts love. Let's pray for this group of people this morning, and then they're going to go prepare, and we're going to witness their baptism. Father, in the name of Jesus, I just pray for this group, Lord, and I ask that you do that great work on their hearts this morning. God, that you circumcise their hearts. They've repented of their sin. They've acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They've made the public de declaration before all here. And now they'll be baptized, Lord. Thank you, God, for hearts that yield to you. And we pray for that great work to be done in the waters this morning. We ask it all in the powerful, wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Amen. Amen.